Thank you, and once again, we greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Theological Seminar of the Air, and trust that today you'll get some blessing and edification and exhortation from our lesson which deals with the teachings of Christ. For purposes of condensation, we've uh, combined uh, Lesson 29 and Lesson 30 on this one broadcast, so this will actually be two broadcasts put together because the nature of the subject, which is not as uh, deep and not as uh, complex of the doctrinal subjects in Christology. We're taking the, taking the subject of the teachings of Christ on today's broadcast as two broadcasts combined, lesson number 29 and lesson number 30. Our lesson today deals with the teachings of Christ. And, of course, in Christology, we're dealing with a department that deals with anthropology, Christ as a man on this earth, as a human being in flesh and blood, subject to the limitations and infirmities of human life. Of course, you've understood by our previous lessons on Christology dealing with the nature of Christ and the nature of his person and his connection with the Godhead, that the Lord Jesus Christ as God could never suffer any human infirmities. But we must never forget that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man. And as such, the Bible says, was tempted in all points like as we are. And as such, the Bible says, a uh, high priest compassed about with infirmity that he might have compassion on others and as such a merciful high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the Bible even goes so far as to say, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So in our lessons on Christology this week, dealing with the teachings of Christ, we are, of course, referring to his earthly utterances as the Jewish Messiah taught on this earth mainly before his crucifixion. We must be very careful to delineate between Christ's teaching to the nation of Israel and the Jewish apostles before the crucifixion and the revelation which he gave Paul for the body of Christ and the revelation which he gave the disciples after his resurrection. In other words, in dealing with the Jewish content of the Jewish messages found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we must never uh, put these in the permanent place over the doctrinal truths of the rest of the New Testament. We must never forget, and there will always be the tendency to forget this, especially by the unsaved, self-righteous liberal, that Jesus Christ in this earth was a Jewish Messiah sent to Israel, and in Romans chapter 15 he is called a minister of the circumcision. He makes this very plain in Matthew chapter 10, when he tells the disciples to go to nobody but the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and nothing could be clearer than the great truth that most of the teachings in the Gospels is of a Jewish content in a pre-crucifixion setting. Now, this does not mean that we cannot learn from these pastors. After all, all scriptures are given inspiration of God and are profitable not only for doctrine, which is what we're primarily interested in these broadcasts, but also for reproof, correction, instruction to righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, in this lesson, we shall attempt to summarize the main teachings of Christ while on earth. Christ in his earthly ministry gave three long discourses. The first was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, which is the constitution of the kingdom when Christ returns and doesn't have the plan of salvation anywhere in it. The second discourse was the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, which deals primarily with the second advent and doesn't have the plan of salvation in it. And finally, the discourse in the upper rooms uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, and the prayer of John 17, which does have much material in it on salvation. Now, for this reason, the unsaved liberal or self-righteous modernist will always prefer the Son on the Mount, 
The Sermon on the Mount has been bragged about and done to death and has been worked over to where you don't have room to breathe by every unsaved man in the country for a very simple reason. The Sermon on the Mount contains no regeneration, no blood atonement, no new birth, no body of Christ, and there isn't a Christian present within six chapters in either direction. That is, you can tell a great deal about a man by where he starts in the Scripture. We're not saying the Sermon on the Mount is not God's Word. Of course it is. We're not saying the Sermon on the Mount should not be heeded. Of course it should. But woe be to the man that plans to get to heaven by the Sermon on the Mount, given to Old Testament circumcised Jews under the law before the crucifixion. Someone has said that Jesus touched on 18 subjects in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 7, we read the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power, and they bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth in Luke 4.22. In some ways, his teachings were new, revolutionary, and contrary to human reasoning, at least as far as a Jew could see, who was under the law. The main thing about him, of course, was he spoke with authority and not as the scribes. The scribes believed like Pontius Pilate in relative truth, so they were never absolute except in their dogmatic prejudice against the truth. You'll find these people talk the most about being broad-minded and unprejudiced on those vicious bigots in the world when pinned right down. This very bunch that is saying perhaps, and we may reasonably assume, and we must give the benefit of the doubt, and it is highly probable, and it is uh, probable but seemingly impossible, but it may indicate that possible if we should suppose. That is the NEA. When that bunch talks like that, you come here and come, come right out and say, there are contradictions in the Bible, period. They're the most vicious bigots in the world. Now, Christ was exactly the object. When Christ taught, he said, this is the way it is, this is the way it's not. Dogmatically, didactically, slam, that's the way it is. And then when he came in the case in dealing with poor law sinners and their sins, he was very, very lenient with them. Did you ever notice that? That is, very often the sheep is wearing wolf's clothing and the wolf is wearing sheep's clothing. And it was one lesson I learned in 46 months in the United States Infantry. It was that things are nearly always exactly the opposite from what they seem. I don't know if you've learned that lesson or not, but that's a great lesson you can learn in life. Now, Jesus' teaching about Old Testament salvation to the Jews under the law was as follows. He revealed himself as the living water to a woman in Samaria, John 4. In John 6, he revealed himself as the true bread of life. In Luke 7, Jesus taught that he had power to forgive sins of the penitent. In John 10, in the discourse in the Good Shepherd, Jesus revealed that he was the only door to salvation, that no man could be saved except through him. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus gave an invitation for the laborers and weary laden to come to him for salvation and rest. Now, this wonderful salvation invitation is further expanded in Luke 14 to include the wanderers and the highways and the byways, the poor, the halt, and the blind. The best loved of all salvation stories is the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And as we said before, since these discourses are primarily before the cross, you'll have to be careful of your doctrinal footsteps in wading through them. For example, the prodigal is said to be a son who was dead and lost. There is no such thing as a lost or dead son of God after the resurrection. You see, you have to be careful. In the pre-crucifixion discourses, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, where he speaks prophetically, as in John 3, except a man be born again, you may have application to New Testament salvation after the Holy Spirit has come to regenerate individuals. But the Holy Spirit is not yet given to Christ as glorified, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Therefore, the new birth is a thing entirely unknown to anybody before Calvary. If you will study your Bible carefully, you will find that contrary to the teaching of Burkhoff, Dabney, Hodge, Kuyper, and the classic Calvinistic theologians and systematic theologies and biblical theologies, there is no new birth from Adam to Christ. Now, we mention this because the Christian schools in America are putting out most of the false doctrine these days and teaching that if a man is chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he's predestinated and elected and all that baloney. Never stop to consider the fact that Abraham was not in Christ and is not in Christ now. Isaac and Jacob were not in Christ and are not in Christ now, and Moses was not in Christ, nor was David, nor was Joshua. Therefore, the ludicrous teaching that since the elect are chosen before the foundation of the world are safe is the height of nonsense. Chosen in Christ was only a reference to New Testament Christians who are in Christ. They don't get in Christ, so they receive Christ in the book of Ephesians. So in dealing with these matters, we should be very careful to notice the difference between illustrations of salvation, stories of salvation found before the crucifixion, and the doctrines of salvation which are found in Romans and Galatians. Now there are some things here that have to do with Jesus' teaching concerning daily living. In Matthew 5:33, we were taught not to swear. In Matthew 5, 40, 41, 42, to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies. Of course, a little bit later, the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you don't have a sword, sell what you have and buy one. You see how you have to write a divide? Once you say, turn the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount, you're in the position of a pacifist, a pacifist the international communist can take over because they're not going to turn the other cheek. They're going to take everything you've got. Now, if a man is a pacifist and an international socialist, he'll turn to the Sermon on the Mount to try to get you to give up your property to somebody else. However, he'll keep his. In Matthew 6, he taught us about giving, that it should be done secretly. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, he lets you know that it was an, an eternal investment. Jesus taught a great deal about prayer. It was to be done in secret. It was to be continuous. It was unlimited in scope and power. Notice especially, please, Matthew 6, 5 to 13, Luke 11, verse 1 to 13, and John 14, verse 13 and 14. Jesus taught if we want to keep in fellowship with the Lord, we must forgive others, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Jesus practiced fasting and taught it. Notice Luke 4, 2 and Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Jesus cautioned against setting our affections on the necessities of life, but thought that the daily needs of food, shelter, and clothing would be provided by the Lord if we paid attention first to God's righteousness. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Jesus taught that it was necessary to confess him as Lord openly. Matthew 10, 32 to 33. And notice particularly John 9, 38. The Lord Jesus instructed his converts to go home and witness to their relatives. Notice Mark 5:19. The Lord Jesus Christ teaching rang with assurance of salvation to, to be saved. John 3:16, John 3:18, John 3:36, John 5:24. There is no case in the New Testament where if a man believes on Jesus Christ, he isn't taught to have assurance that God is going to take care of it and get him home to heaven one way or another.
A great deal of the upper room discourse speaks of the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, who came to guide and conduct and energize and strengthen the believer after Pentecost. Notice John 14, verse 16 to 26. Jesus did not promise his believers and his disciples an easy time, but mentioned persecution freely, and at the same time promised help and grace for every trial. Notice in particular John 16, 1-6, and Luke 12, 11, and 12. The Lord Jesus Christ used to say, While you're in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Be a good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord Jesus Christ would say, The time will come when men shall think they do God a service. They'll think if they kill you, they'll do God a favor. The Lord Jesus Christ said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, Jesus had a great deal to say about Pharisees and false teachers and false prophets, which, of course, you hear very little said about today's ministry. Today's ministry is under financial uh, duress, so the average person in America today trying to build a big ministry has to be careful what he says in order not to hurt his income. The Lord Jesus Christ never had that problem. He was very loud and firm in his denunciation of false teachers and hypocrites. In Matthew 23, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, eight times. Matthew 23, 13, 23, 14, 23, 15, 23, 16, 23, 23, 23, 25, 23, 27, and 23, 29. And he called the leading religious lights of the National Council of his day blind guides and fools. No wonder they crucified him. In John 8, 44, Jesus told them they were of their father, the devil, which is just as strong language as you could possibly use. And this was aimed at the leading religious leaders of the establishment of his day. In Matthew 16, 6, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, who taught false doctrines. For example, the Pharisees loved long robes and liked to be called father, Matthew 23. The Sadducees denied resurrection and denied that angels were spirit beings. Christ warned the disciples to beware of that false teaching. Jesus taught that these two false teachers did their utmost to make converts, but they were twofold more the child of hell than they were themselves. Matthew 23:15. In Matthew 7:15, we find a warning from the Savior to beware of false prophets that are ravening wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And Luke 20, verse 45 to 47, we have a clear warning to the disciples to beware of the scribes who are in charge of preserving the Scriptures and passing the Scriptures on down and would mistranslate and revise the Bible to suit themselves. Now, these warnings are given by your Savior and Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are not to be taken lightly, nor to be taken with the flippant attitude that some of you egotists have, that if a man speaks negatively of somebody's faith, he's to be censured or condemned, or with the stupid reaction that some of you bigots have, that if somebody exposes sin and false doctrine in the life of a religious leader or religious teacher, that there's something wrong with that man. There's something wrong with you. The Lord Jesus Christ did it constantly, and Paul did it constantly, and exhorted the Christian to do it. You say, well, there's so much I can't tell who's right and who's wrong. You ought to be ashamed to make that confession. You say, well, Brother Ruffin, this preacher said he's right, and this preacher said he's right. You all talk like you were sure of the truth, and yet you all contradict. So I just come to the conclusion either all wrong or else all of you all right, but all trying to get to heaven in different ways. You're a fool. You have no business getting rid of the truth of God just because you're too wicked to look it up. You have no business throwing the Bible out just because you hear it taught different ways and preached different ways. 
You have no right to draw a false conclusion because you're too lazy and too wicked to search the Scriptures. You are to search the Scriptures, friend. You're not to believe some nut because he said the gospel of Christ is Acts 2.38. When the one gospel Paul preached was not Acts 2.38, and Peter didn't preach Acts 2.38 again anywhere in the book of Acts. You see what I mean? Jolly bean? If you want to learn the truth to make you free, you're going to have to get in that book and study out. I mean, listen to some guy misquoting it to try to get your money. Jesus had a great deal to say about hell. He spoke of hell and eternal punishment 70 times in the Gospels. Does your preacher preach about that that many times? Christ's earthly ministry lasted three and a half years, and that time he spoke of hell and eternal punishment 70 times. Do you realize what that is, beloved? That's 20 times a year. That's 20 Sundays out of 52. That's almost half. Does your preacher preach 20 sermons on hell every year? What's he doing talking about the gospel of Christ? Is he a raving maniac or something? Who are these people going around talking about following Christ and following the example of the lowly Galilean and following the lowly Jesus and not preaching on hell 20 times a year? He did. In Matthew 25, 41, he said, Depart from me, you cursed and everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It was Jesus who gave us the clearest picture of torment in hell and the term hellfire which you religious bigots hate and talk about so much and mock and mention every time somebody tells you the truth, is a quotation from Jesus Christ. You better be careful how you treat that subject. Folks said there's a bunch of hellfire preachers down there, and hellfire and damnation preachers were good. They were imitating the lowly Galilean. What are you imitating? In Mark 9, 48 is a solemn warning to avoid hell, for the one dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And although the Lord Jesus Christ does not mention New Jerusalem directly, the home of the saved, he does say to the dying thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And he pictures heaven as a home with God as Father. In Matthew 6, 9 and Luke 11, 2. Jesus came from heaven to die and bring many sons home to heaven. When we speak of heaven, we're not speaking of the first, second, and third heaven. We're speaking of New Jerusalem, a city built by God, whose builder and maker is God, that hath foundations, that cometh down from God out of heaven, and in this Father's house are many mansions, and I don't mean kingdoms. Beware of all this kingdom nonsense you're hearing these days. I'm trying to tell you the only gospel Christ preached was the gospel of the kingdom, and the no such thing is going to heaven when you die. Listen, friend, you've got to go through three heavens to get to your heavenly home. You better speak about it as going to heaven. You've got three of them to go through before you get there. Jesus had something to say about fruit-bearing. In John 15, verse 1 to 7, the heart of the upper room discourse dealt with the vine and the branches, with the desire that we should bear fruit, much fruit, and more fruit. The Lord Jesus Christ said the Father was glorified if we bore much fruit. Every Christian should be a fruit-bearing Christian. And his great parables in Matthew chapter 7 and Mark chapter 3, <clears throat> We're told that when the Lord Jesus Christ, or Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 3, we're told when the Lord Jesus Christ went out to sow the word and put it down, that it bore fruit. He said some of the word that he put down the ground would bear fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So God's people are to be fruit-bearing Christians. In the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13, the tree that does not bear fruit, 
was to be cut down, destroyed, and cast into the fire. That was a picture, of course, of the nation of Israel. The fig tree always did represent Israel. It was only a fig tree, only tree that God cursed, and it withered from the roots up, and yet we're told that God's going to restore that tree and put the branches back on it in Romans chapter 11. In this age, Israel bears no fruit. In this age, only the born-again believer bears fruit. And Christ said, By their fruits you shall know them. If you want to find out whether or not a translation is of God or not, look at the fruits, the translation. Somebody said the Living Bible sold three million copies last year. Well, that's kid stuff. That's kid stuff. You know how many copies of that King James Bible have been put out since 1611? 809 million copies. Not counting the parts published and not counting the books written about it. 809 million copies. The King James Bible has circulated freely more copies than the RSV and the ASV in the Living Bible have sold combined. What are the fruits of it? The ASV came out in 1901, followed by World War I, World War II, Vietnam and Korea, the bankruptcy of England, the division of Germany, and the communist takeover of China and Bulgaria, Romania, and Russia and Czechoslovakia. The RSV came out in 1952, followed by the Vietnam War, the doubling of the tax rate, inflation, the doubling of the divorce rate, and a nation of chronic alcoholics who talked about legalizing marijuana. What are the results of the Living Bible? Fewer souls saved, Episcopal churches losing ministers by the hundreds, Catholic seminaries folding up, and the whole world becoming secular and going back to the worship of humanism as the final religion. Do you think those are Bibles? You know where the Great Awakening came from in 1700? From a King James Bible. You know where the Second Great Awakening came from in 1800? From a King James Bible. You know what Moody and Torrey and Finney and Spurgeon and Billy Sunday preached? A King James Bible. You know what Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Princeton and Bob Jones, University of Chicago and Columbia founded upon when they started? A King James Bible. By their fruits, you shall know them. A man said to one of our young students, he said, uh, What book do you use? He said, I use the one that God uses. A Ph.D. from a Christian school said to one of our young men here at the Penn School of Bible Institute, he said, You're a Ruckmanite. And the kid said, where do you get that? And the fellow said, you're following a man. You don't believe there are any mistakes in the King James Bible. Our young man said, of course I don't. Do you? And the Ph.D. said, of course. And our young man said, what man are you following who taught you that? Oh, that's a bopper now, ain't it? All right, in the parable of the sower of the seed, Matthew 13, Jesus expresses his desire that each believer should bear fruit. Some thirty-fold, some sixty-fold, others a hundred-fold. Now, as born-again believers, we need to be purged in order that we should bring forth more fruit. And in John 15, too, the Lord Jesus Christ takes that branch and prunes that thing and cuts and plows around it and fertilizes it so it can bring forth more fruit. Sometime in the cold of criticism, the frost nips the fruit in the bud and it doesn't bear. Sometime in the heat of popularity, it gets too hot and the fruit withers in the vine. But each child of God is to be a fruit-bearing Christian. The purging is a bitter experience that has to do with digging and dunging and pruning, but it is essential. In Luke 6, verse 43 to 46, we are told we should bear the fruit of the Spirit and win people to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time on today's broadcast to discuss the uh, teaching of Jesus Christ on prophecy, 
But we'll talk about that more when we get into what we call eschatology, which in systematic theology and biblical theology is the study of prophecy proper, called eschatology, or the study or knowledge of the last things. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 to 25 deals almost entirely with prophetic subjects. In Matthew 24, verse 1 to 3, we find mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem, which, will, which took place in 70 A.D. In Matthew 24, verse 4 to 14, we have passed to deal with the deteriorating, carrier, uh, the deteriorating career of this age in which we live, the degeneration of the modern age. And then in Matthew 24, verse 15 to 26, we have verse to deal with the Great Tribulation, the main subject of the Old Testament, which is also called the time of Jacob's troubles. In Matthew 24, verse 27 to 31, we have the verse that tell about the return of our Lord in glory, and further details are added in the parable of the fig tree, verses 32 to 51, and the ten virgins of Matthew 25, 1 to 13, who of course are not in the church age at all. They represent tribulation saints who are waiting the Lord to come back. Uh, we'll talk about Matthew 25, 0, and the ten virgins when we get to that passage. In Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, we read about the judgment of the nations that will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and separates the people who have taken care of the Jew in the tribulation and the people who have not. And the seven mysteries of Matthew 13 are prophetical, and they deal with the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven in this age. Now, in concluding, we may sum up the teachings of Christ in two words, love and condemnation. He summarized the 600 commandments that the Orthodox Jew lived under to two commandments, love God and love your fellow man, Matthew 22, verse 30 to 7 to 39, and mentioned they'd be cast into outer darkness and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth if they did not accept him as their Messiah. Love became the supreme mark of the Christian in John 13:35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another and hatred for sin, Condemnation of sin is the other mark. As John says, love not the world, neither the things in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ left the church, which is his body, on this earth to witness in his absence, Matthew 28, 19, and Mark 16, 15. And Jesus' doctrine tells us not only to love the lovely, but to love the unlovely, even our enemies. For he already loved them and died for them according to the word of God. The teachings of Christ then on this earth deal primarily with the nation of Israel, but they point forward the great spiritual truths that become concrete after the resurrection and personified in the work and ministry of the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly half the New Testament to the saved people, giving them the correct teaching for the body of Christ, for the believer who has been born again. Now here we conclude our study of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in his uh, pre-crucifixion ministry to the nation of Israel as the Jewish Messiah. Our next broadcast, we'll talk a little bit about the commands of Christ. Uh, the commands of Christ come into about 147 commandments, and the Great Commission uh, Prayer League has listed 173 commandments of Christ. Of course, they're taken from the epistles and Revelation as well as the Gospels. So our next broadcast, we'll take up the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ that run into about 173 commandments, and we'll take up the main ones. Not all of them, but we'll take up at least a hundred of these commandments and discuss how they relate to the Christian in this particular age. We trust you'll be with us on that broadcast next week. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.